For those who do not know what a field strewn with dead resembles, here it is. What had been men now looked like lots of discarded clothes scattered about. Most of us had overcoats, and these were all then in view. They did not seem to have men inside them. Packs, gas masks, and all sorts of equipment was all around. Then, too, the dead looked so small, they seemed to shrink up. The shelling was intense, and they started using high explosives and gas. The gas and fumes and croton oil made me deathly sick, and I vomited and was scared almost to death. This matter of being brave is a lot of talk, and I am sure there were very few heroes that morning. Master Engineer Leroy Hale, 304th Engineers, 79th Division, Mers-Argonne, September 29, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 61, Mers Argonne, Shot to Pieces. Quick shout out to listener Andrew, our newest patron on Patreon. We all know, and I know I've said it before, we all know that social media can be a hell site. For lots of the usual reasons, but I really hold on to the fact that social media can also be a wonderful place to connect with people who are just as passionate about something as you are. Andrew is an example of just one of those connections. After chatting back and forth on Instagram, Andrew very kindly and generously sent me a copy of his book, Good War, Great Men, which is an homage to his grandfather, who served in the 313th Machine Gun Battalion, 80th Blue Ridge Division. Links to Andrew's book will be in the episode notes. Thank you now, Andrew, for your patronage of the BFWWP. Thank you, sir. We're otherwise light on admin notes this episode, so I'm going to mention Lost Battalion Tours, and then we'll get right back onto the battlefield. If this is your very first BFWWP episode, or you somehow haven't yet heard of it, you might be asking yourself, what is Lost Battalion Tours? Well, whether you asked or not, here I am with the answer. Lost Battalion Tours is a new venture begun by author Robert J. Laplander and myself, and our inaugural tour will be an eight-day trip to the Meurs and Argonne region running August 8th through the 15th of the year 2020. We'll be leading just 14 guests through the battlefields the American Expeditionary Force fought through. Several spots have already been reserved, so listen below for our contact information. Those of you who have traveled with Robert in the Argonne before know this is no sightseeing bus trip. This is down in the dirt, where it happened stuff. Now you can join us for a trip you won't soon forget. You 
will stay in the Argonne at a small French hotel as part of your Argonne immersion experience. You'll see all the important spots concerning the Meuse-Argonne battle, including a first-hand tour of the whole story of the Lost Battalion with the number one Lost Battalion historian in the world. On top of that, each tour can be tailored to fit almost any special request visit by guests. Have a relative who served in the 80th Division or a great-grandfather who was in the 313th Infantry? We'll craft our days so that we visit key points where your ancestors served on the battlefield. And all of this is for a one-time, all-inclusive price of just $1,200 U.S. dollars per single guest or $1,000 per guest in groups of two or more. Please note, this price does not include airfare. It does not include airfare. Regarding airfare, prices there remain very reasonable for U.S. flights into Paris' CDG airport, and if you don't mind a stop or two, prices are even better. If you think something like this is out of reach or too difficult to make happen, Talk to either Rob or myself. We can work with you to get you into the trenches and shell holes. Contact Robert J. Laplander or myself for more details via email at lostbattaliontours at gmail.com. This really makes a fabulous Christmas gift at a very affordable price that your significant other will treasure forever. So don't miss out contact us today and join us. We are along the road, parallel 276.4, waiting for you. And really, folks, I think it's going to be a great time. I'm always longing to get back to the MERS, and I'm thoroughly excited to meet you folks out there. As excited as I am to be out on the battlefields again, I'm also excited for the camaraderie and conversations that will come. Rob and I can talk World War One for hours, all caps, hours, and we do, all the time, and it's great, and we look forward to having those same conversations with you. All right, back to the front lines. When we finished episode 60, Montfaucon Hill had just been taken by Doughboys of the 79th Division. This imposing butte, dubbed Little Gibraltar, by the Germans, was seen by the American army as one of the keys to breaking the German defenses in the Meuse region, if it wasn't the key itself. From here, it was on to the Kriemhilde Stellung, the German third line that was part of the dreaded Hindenburg line. General Pershing and his AEF command staff believed the Kriemhilde line would now be pierced, and the roll-up of the German defenses would begin. Of course, we know that it was not so. This episode will focus on the days following the fall of Montfaucon as the U.S. 37th and 79th Divisions continued pushing against ever-hardening German resistance. In the last narrative episode, I apparently made an error in noting that the village of Ivoirie was captured on the 27th of September. Ivoirie was actually taken on the 28th. My apologies for that error. After its assault on Ivoirie west of the embattled Montfaucon, the Buckeyes of the AEFs 
37th Division could make no further progress that day. Exhausted, these men hunkered down for the rest of the day. To their right, the doughboys of the 313th Infantry Regiment in the ruins of Montfaucon readied themselves for another assault. There was no time to stop. They had already watched the remaining survivors of the German 11th Grenadiers pull back to form a hasty defense line running through the Bois de Bourges to the north. Colonel Claude Sweezy of the 313th requested an artillery bombardment to hit the Bois de Bourges prior to his regiment's assault. The artillery never came. It was too far back, in the mud and the traffic jam behind the AEF First Army's front lines. Also, division, corps, and army-level artillery assets had little to no idea where the front line actually was. So they held to no-fire zones some six miles thick in order to prevent friendly fire casualties. At 3.30 p.m., Sweezy ordered the attack to go forward. Doughboys of the 313th, along with tanks and men of Captain Bob Hewitt's Foxtrot Company, 316th Infantry, pushed off and moved down the northern slope of Montfaucon towards the enemy. With no artillery preparation, they predictably walked into a hailstorm of machine gun fire. Doughboys collapsed as bullets punched into their young bodies. Captain Hewitt ordered his men to run for a railroad cut at the southern edge of the Bois de Bourges. Survivors who made it across the open fields ran like hell through the enemy fire to take cover in the roadbed. Dug in at the southern edge of the woods, the doughboys remained under terrific machine gun fire from the Germans ensconced deeper in the woods. In small groups, men began to get up and pour fire back at the enemy. They also began maneuvering forward into the trees, battling any German machine gun nest they found. In the midst of the fighting, despite the rage and carnage around them, there were scenes of the best of humanity. An incident is recounted in William Walker's Betrayal at Little Gibraltar, where a wounded Polish German was found by a private Adam Matlowski, who was also of Polish origin. Captain Hewitt interrogated the wounded man through Matlowski and then said, quote, Take care of him, Matt. It doesn't matter if he is in the German army. He has to fight, same as we all have to fight. When it gets dark, take him to the first aid station. Unquote. Despite their best efforts, the doughboys of the 313th and 316th could make no further headway into the Bois de Bourges. As darkness fell on another wet and raw day in the Meuse, the men began to come under terrible shellfire from German artillery. At first they thought it was, it was their own artillery coming in, late and terribly wrong. However, it was German fire coming from east of the Meuse. During the night, the Americans had to withdraw back to the northern slope of Montfaucon. At this point, Colonel Sweezy realized he had pushed his regiment as far as it could go. To Major Parkin of the 316th, Sweezy said, Have your regiment relieve mine tonight instead of in the morning. We are all shot to pieces. It was the same on the 79th Division's right, where the 314th Infantry launched itself out of the Bois de la Tuilerie and toward Nantua. 
They, too, were hit with a wall of machine gun fire and then artillery. Unable to push any further, these men dug in just a third of a mile north of Montfaucon. The German artillery was fierce and terribly effective. Sergeant Davies, a soldier in the 315th Infantry, behind the assaulting 314th, recalled that, quote, about 8.30, the Germans started to shell us. My God, it was awful. We lost men left and right. Poor Pritchard got his tonight, had his head blown off. Just a kid, too. The cries of the wounded and dying was awful, and I can never forget them. Everywhere you could hear them crying for first aid. The hospital men did their best, but every time a shell landed, we lost men. I'm wondering if any of us will be alive by morning, unquote. As we've heard with the other divisions we've covered so far, it was the same the next morning. It was wet, it was cold, there was no food, and there was no artillery support. Yet the attacks were ordered to proceed. The 37th pushed off at 0630, with no preparatory barrage to soften the enemy's hardening defenses. The Buckeyes cleared Ivoire and moved through the fields beyond with no resistance. The Germans had pulled back in the night. The Americans pushed on into the village of Sierge, cleared it as well, and approached a ridgeline beyond. Here, disaster struck. The Germans had baited the Americans into advancing into a trap, and now they caught Doughboys in the open with a torrent of machine gun fire and both high explosive and shrapnel shells. The exhausted Americans cracked under the chaos. They ran back through Sierge with a German counterattack on their heels. Reforming a line, the Doughboys dug in south of Sierge in the bois Aimont. There, they stayed. The Germans fixed their location and let loose a constant bombardment of shells through the rest of the day. Private Ray Johnson wrote that the shelling was starting to get to everyone. Quote, the constant harassing we were undergoing began to tell on our nerves, which had been in a state of tension for so long that they began to frazzle. The steady rain increased the irritation we felt. We could not fight shellfire, just had to take our medicine and hang on, unquote. To the right of the 37th Division, the 316th had taken over for the 313th. The men of the 79th Division had also been ordered to continue attacking regardless of artillery support and regardless of cost. The 316th launched two battalions at the Bois de Bourges, which the Germans had reoccupied fully after the American withdrawal. Major Atwood's 3rd Battalion had already been shelled as it formed for the attack under enemy observation. There was no American response to the deluge of shells. Major Parkin of the 1st Battalion wrote later, quote, We were now experiencing the heaviest and worst shellfire we had yet endured. Shellfire is terrifying and demoralizing, and it takes good disciplined troops to endure it and not break or be driven back. I am proud to say that my men not only endured it, but advanced under it and through it without flinching and were scarcely free from it for the next two days, unquote. The Doughboys advanced through the same open fields they had crossed the day before. Enemy fire tore into the American ranks as they ran forward. Captain Bob Hewitt was there again, ordering his men to get to the railroad cut from the day before. 
Hewitt took a bullet to the wrist as he ran through the hailstorm of bullets and shrapnel. In short order, the Americans were again pinned down before the Bois de Bourges, and without artillery support to blast the entrenched Germans, it would be damn near impossible to take the wood. As the day went on, some artillery units became available, but Colonel Charles, the commanding officer of the 316th, was afraid to authorize any fire missions that might send shells raining into his own men. Charles ordered the advance to continue without artillery. Majors Atwood and Parkin reluctantly, but faithfully, ordered their surviving men to renew the attack. As soon as Atwood rose to his feet, he was shot dead. The attack went on. An officer who witnessed the second assault was left helplessly infuriated by it. His quote comes to us through William Walker's betrayal at Little Gibraltar. Quote, It was just such a command which had sent the light brigade to destruction and eternal glory at Balaclava. It did the same for L and M companies of the 316th on that September day in the depths of the woods. Someone had blundered. Officers and men of the 3rd Battalion paid with their lives for the fatal error. Two full companies, well nigh 500 men, went forward without the slightest bit of artillery or machine gun fire to cover them. Unquote. It was the individual initiative of officers like Major Parkin and soldiers under their command that began to claw the Bois de Bourges from the Germans. Men by themselves and in small groups, began to maneuver around the wood, outflanking enemy machine gun nests and then wiping them out. The enemy, realizing he was being outmaneuvered, began conducting a fighting retreat from the woods. The Bois de Bourges fell at the cost of well over 250 men. On the 79th's right, the 315th Infantry crossed open ground again as well to launch a new attack on Nantiwa with support from the 4th Division to their right. German planes spotted the cocky-clad doughboys and called in deadly accurate shellfire on them. Many of the doughboys felt that their own air forces were nowhere to be seen, although Captain Eddie Rickenbacker and his crew were up there shooting down German observation balloons like it was going out of style. German machine gun fire and artillery stopped the attack at the edge of Nantiwa. Again, it came down to individuals and small groups deciding to make their own tactics and to try to break the deadlock. Two such men were Captain William Carroll and one of his NCOs, who snuck down a sunken road and outflanked a German machine gun nest before killing or wounding the crew. With this chink in the defenses open, the men of the 315th poured into the village. Nantiwa fell at 11 o'clock that morning, two days behind the original timetable and with some 40% losses for the attackers. With Nantiwa taken, the attack continued on towards Hill 274. From here, the men of the 79th Division could see the doughboys of the 4th Division on their right battling it out in the Bois de Brieux to the east. From Hill 274, the men of the 315th could see the valley ahead. On the western side of that valley was Ferme de Madeleine, 
Madeline Farm, a group of buildings to the west of Bois de Ogon, a wood directly ahead that was the first outpost line of the Krimhilde Stellung. Leading with two Saint-Chamond and four Renault tanks crewed by Frenchmen, the 315th launched its attack in mid-afternoon. At first, the Doughboys felt good being led by the clanking and squealing tanks, the mammoth but underpowered Saint-Chamonds, and the small but numerous Renaults. However, as the Germans poured machine gun fire directly at the armored vehicles, the ricochets began to punch into the infantry behind them. Then the Germans opened up on the tanks with field guns. It seemed as if each single Bosch sought out one of the tanks, one doughboy said later. It bowled them over one at a time with a regularity that was heartbreaking. Within a short time, the French crews crawled out of their tanks and hoofed it for the rear. The Americans made it into the Bois d'Ogon somehow, and the fighting raged as German machine gunners fired point-blank into the oncoming enemy. The Doughboys eliminated nest after nest of enemy troops, but the amount of fire continued to rise. They didn't realize that they were up against French troops of the German third and main line now. It soon became too much. Nevertheless, the order to retreat came as a blow to the face of many Americans deep in the Bois de Ogon. We were making good progress when we were ordered out of the woods, a doughboy recalled. Word had been received that the Germans were going to set the woods on fire, so we had to give it up. Lieutenant Bagans actually cried when he had to evacuate. He said it had cost so much to take the woods, it seemed a crime to give them up now. We got out just in time for the Germans to start a terrific bombardment and almost leveled the woods. The survivors of the 315th Infantry, having left some 400 men in the wood and the field south of it, now hunkered down on the southern slope of Hill 274. Back on the Lorraine Cross Division's left front, the 316th had unexpected help appear in the just-captured Bois de Bourges. Six French-crewed Saint-Chamond tanks, each with an officer guide out in front, ground their way up to the northern edge of the wood and offered help with clearing Bois 268, the next objective just north of Bois de Bourges. Major Parkin, the commanding officer of the force within the wood, accepted, and the tanks clanked off into the open valley. Parkin remarked later that he had never seen anyone as brave as those French officers guiding their tanks out in the open, testing the ground to see if it was too soft for the large armored beasts. Of course, in no time, the Germans had air observers reporting the tanks and a bombardment raining down. From Walker's betrayal at Little Gibraltar, here's Major Parkin recalling what happened next. Quote, the shells were dropping fast now, about the tanks hurrying back to cover. Suddenly one of the tanks farthest out was squarely hit by a shell, and to our astonishment great tongues of fire poured from it. To our horror, not a door of that tank opened. Not one of the six men in it survived. The tank stopped when hit and stood there, smoking and burning. The brave men within, killed by the explosion, or if wounded, 
slowly roasted to death there before our eyes, unquote. Some of the Germans in Bois 268, a small wood that today sits on the west side of the D-15 road running between Nantiwa and Cunel, pulled out of the wood and headed north. Those who stayed faced the assault of Major Parkin and his dwindling body of exhausted soldiers. The Americans swarmed into the thin tree line and killed everyone in sight. The Germans then responded with endless artillery shells, and the Americans soon realized they were out ahead of everyone else. Their flanks were in the air, as they would have put it in those days. Major Parkin gathered what officers he had left to discuss pulling back. Captain Bob Hewitt, normally an easygoing type, bristled. Never, Hewitt said. We helped capture the Bois de Bourges twice, and it's too costly to cross these open spaces. So they hunkered down in slimy shell holes, in the rain, and with shells crashing down everywhere around them. There was no food to be had anywhere unless someone whose brain was still functioning remembered to rifle through the belongings of dead Germans. Everyone was worn out. We looked like wild men with our three-day beers and hollow eyes and ragged, mud-spattered uniforms, a doughboy said later. We acted like dazed men with every sense dull. Only remained the instinct to fight and save ourselves. The 29th of September dawned gray, wet, cold, and miserable. In the center of 5th Corps, the Buckeyes of the 37th Division got up to attack the enemy again. Chewing on some coffee grounds and sugar, the tired Americans resigned themselves to their next mission. With the 75-millimeter guns of Lieutenant Bob Casey now firing away at the German line, the doughboys fell in behind 10 French crewed tanks. Lieutenant Casey watched the usual scene be repeated again and again. Quote, Line after line of doughboys moved slowly up the hill in extended order, their rifles at the port. They would come to the crest. The Maxims would stutter. They would tumble down like dominoes in a row. Litter bearers would come forward on a run. Another scattering line of infantry. Another five or six silhouettes on the crest. Another comment from the machine guns. Another rush of litter bearers. And so on, endlessly. Unquote. The 37th Division's attacks failed to the point where officers risked the wrath of General Pershing and called off any further attacks. They had advanced a mile and a half under the terrible conditions, but the Buckeyes were spent. Division Commander General Charles Farnsworth supported his officers, letting them know later on that, quote, have notified Corps Commander that we cannot advance and am insisting that the division be relieved immediately, unquote. The 79th Division was in the same condition as the 37th. There was no food to be had. One regiment's supply train had been shelled and destroyed when it got too close to the front. The day's objectives were Bois 250 on the left and Madeleine Farm and the Bois de Ogon on the right. There was little to no artillery support for the day's attacks, which kicked off in the morning. The doughboys of the 316th crested Hill 274 and ran down its northern slope. They ran 
into a withering wall of machine gun fire from just about every woodline, ravine, bush, trench, and shell hole in front of them. 1st Battalion was stopped 300 yards from Bois 268, which had been taken the previous day. To the right, a group of some 50 men broke into the Bois 268 and beyond into Bois 250, where they were later cut off and isolated. On the division's right, the 315th Infantry launched itself at Madeleine Farm in Bois de Ogon, with some support on the right from the 4th Division again. They were led by four French tanks and, quote, strained almost to the breaking point by three days of continuous fighting. The troops gathered themselves together and with a cheer rushed upon the woods ahead, unquote. The tanks were destroyed as soon as they came within range of the unseen enemy. Devastating machine gun and shell fire from straight ahead and from the flanks cut deep into the ranks of doughboys. A panicked retreat began all along the line of the 79th, with men breaking towards their starting lines as German shells chased them across the shell-pocked fields. Some, both officers and enlisted, tried to rally the stumbling men back into a line and back towards the enemy. Others, like Captain Bob Hewitt, took command of those around them and attacked the Germans again. Hewitt was killed, leading his men forward across a field as the cold rain poured down. The 79th Division was done. It didn't break, but Major General Kuhn had no choice but to pull back to a line running Bois de Bourges through Nantiwah and await relief by the 3rd Division, also known as the Rock of the Marne. The Lorraine Cross Division left a terrible trail in its wake. Everywhere it had been, it had left a telltale sign of dead. The division was worn out. Between the start of combat operations on the morning of the 26th and the 30th of September, the Lorraine Division had lost some 3,600 men killed, wounded, or missing from its ranks. The 37th Division was also worn out with some 3,100 battle casualties. The 91st Division on the left of these two ended its abortive attacks on Gênes with 4,700 casualties after three days of heavy combat. This meant that all three of 5th Corps' divisions were spent. All three needed to be relieved. Two fresh and battle-tested divisions, the 32nd and the 3rd, were ordered up to the line. They would relieve the 79th and its sister divisions on the 30th of September. As 5th Corps' divisions faltered under the terrible strain of combat against a hardened enemy, the 3rd Corps, from Montfaucon to the Meurs, was struggling as well. Next episode, we'll get over to see how Lieutenant General Robert Bullard's divisions were faring in this brutal fight. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Or get at me on the Twitter at at WW1Podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.